Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Uh, Hi, it's David Rothkopf, the host, and... It is Thursday, and we are here not in our super-secret studio in Washington, D.C., but we're in our strange studio on the fourth floor of a walk-up on McDougal Street in New York City. And I'm joined today by my usual co-host, Ryan Goodman of NYU Law School, and also by Kate Shaw of uh, Cardozo Law School at Yeshiva University. Welcome, Kate. Thanks, David. This is one of these uh, great episodes where actually everybody's in the same room together, so we don't have phones and, and, and things, and we can have a, a more engaging conversation. Uh, and we are, it seems we're on the cusp of yet another new phase in the impeachment process, because next week um, we are going to begin open impeachment um, hearings, and uh, that promises all sorts of things. Public is going to learn a lot. And it's going to see a lot because it's going to be turned into a political circus. Uh, We got a bit of a hint as to how the Republicans want to handle this when they started speculating that they would like to add Jim Jordan to the the Republican side on the Hill. And Jim Jordan, um, who I believe failed the bar, is not known as one of the great legal minds of our time, Um, but he is kind of, to use a legal term. I don't know if they use it NYU or Cardozo, but he's a kind of a shit stirrer. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that's what they're going to do is they're going to distract. What do you expect next week, Kate? Well, so a lot of this has been happening behind closed doors, right? We've seen transcripts come out over the last couple of days, but even for those of us who follow this really closely, it has been hard to keep up, right? These transcripts are long and dense, um, and there are some really gripping bits, but uh, you kind of have to wade through them. So I think that there's going to be an opportunity to create a public-facing narrative. And so that, I mean, I think there are kind of two objectives for the Democrats on the Intelligence Committee, right? Because we're just going to be in Intel next week, and eventually things will shift to judiciary, but there's going to be, um, you know, some fact-finding probably. They've done a lot of fact-finding behind closed doors, but I presume we might learn new things in these open hearings. Um, but I think the other major project is a narrative one, right? Like they need to start to tell the story to the public because public opinion matters hugely in impeachment processes about why the president's conduct was so troubling um, and why it rises to the level of the constitutional standard of high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, I think that's the core issue. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Ryan, you know, you and I talk about this periodically, but there is this sense among legal scholars and lawyers and TV talking lawyers that there's a legal case to be made here and there are rules of evidence and, and, and you sort of have to look at this the same way you look at a legal case, but it's not a legal case. It's a political case. 
And part of the issue is how do you lay out the narrative politically? And one of the things that colors that is how does the audience consume the narrative mm. politically, right? It was a Watergate. We talked about this earlier, but Watergate, you got up. You, you don't remember this. Take my word for it. I was very little. But you sort of got up. You turned on the TV. You watched the thing from beginning to end. You thought about it a little. You read about it the next morning in the New York Times to make sure you saw what you saw. And that was how you consumed it. Here, the Democratic infosphere is going to get two to three minute tweeted out bites mm -hmm. of powerful points from Democrats and the Republican infosphere is going to get two to three minute bites of Meadows or somebody saying, this is a sham, a travesty of a mockery of a sham or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, and there's going to be, you know, and if that's the case, nothing's going to move. Right. Do, do, what, what can they do to actually move the needle so that more and more people think something really wrong happened here? So I think that um, for me, I think what's going to be, Important is that we're going to see people who have been appointed by Trump himself to senior positions in the government not being adversarial witnesses or hard to pull out information from them, but in fact coming forward to kind of do their duty and in fact inform the American public of what happened. That's what we can see from the transcripts, that they actually did this um, and defying the White House orders not to even show up. So I think there will be powerful visual um, clips and in fact, I think it might even be an embarrassment of riches in terms of getting the public educated which clips you would choose from, because this is going to be hours long, but multiple instances, in which I don't think the focus will be on the great questions asked, but rather these um, very evocative um, statements made, um, and including uh, the Ambassador Yovanovitch, which my understanding is that when she did testify that it was a powerful emotional, psychological feeling in the room because here is this ambassador of the United States who has been smeared um, and trashed without any foundation for any of the criticisms of her and then pulled out of Ukraine in order to make room for Giuliani. And I think that's powerful. It's a powerful narrative to the American public who many people will never even have heard about this part of the story. So I think there's a lot of storytelling that could happen um, next week. Well, you know, it comes down to, in the end... Um do a sufficient number of Americans conclude something sufficiently wrong happened that it would be damaging to the Republicans to defend him? In other words, it's not, did he do this thing wrong? He did. Even the Republicans are starting to say he did, yeah. but it's just not impeachable. Um, what they care about, and, and, and there's sort of two phases, right? There's the Senate trial. And then there's the election. And the, the, what they care about is, is this going to damage them for defending the president, right? That seems to be the central issue. How do you, how do you move the seemingly immovable object of the Republican position that no matter what Donald Trump does, it's never wrong enough? Right. Well, you know, I, I think that things like, you know, signals from the public, like the election returns from this Tuesday, right, and what looks to be the outcome of the Kentucky gubernatorial race, um, 
are the kinds of things that, you know, if there are enough of them, you could, I think, start to see a little bit of a softening. Um, and, you know, Ryan and I did a panel earlier this week with Bob Bauer, former White House counsel, who made um, the point, which I think is a good one, that, you know, there's a sort of a veneer of a unified front of support, but there's actually kind of a range in terms of the intensity of the support. And there are members, you know, there are some very diehard supporters of the president who will not be moved. I think probably no matter what, right, in the Congress. Um, it's children. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, you know, members of his party, um, mm. members of the Congress. Um, but I think there are a lot where the support is quite thin and where, you know, where he's clashed with them publicly and in all kinds of embarrassing ways um, and where he is making their life harder, right? Because all of them are interested in their own electoral fortunes. So, you know, I, I, it's it's hard to know exactly how this sort of push and pull of public opinion and then congressional reaction is exactly going to play out. Um, but I think that Ryan's right that, you know, in the silo, siloed media environment that you allude to is a problem. Um, but if all you have from the witnesses themselves is extremely damaging or mostly very damaging testimony, and the only thing that, you know, supportive media outlets could find to display is the kind of long questions of Republican members of the committee, at a certain point, they might, I feel like people will start to wonder what the answers to the questions are and thus might seek those answers out elsewhere. Um, so, you know, I think a lot turns on what actually gets said and I do think some people will actually sit and watch as opposed to just get these kind of pre-digested two- and three-minute segments. No, I, I, I agree that some will, but it'll be, you know, a high percentage of the yeah. wonk community who are really sort of into this and have their minds made up. Yeah. The question is whether the people who don't have their minds made up are going to actually invest the time in this. And, you know, one of the things that will make them invest the time is if there is something compelling to watch. Mm -hmm. If it just ends up being a rehash of past testimony, that won't be the case. If the conflicts are intense, that might be the case. But what will be, you know, per perhaps the most compelling will be new news, things that we haven't heard before. You mentioned Giuliani earlier. One of the things that strikes me is this is all about Giuliani. We haven't heard from Giuliani. Mm. We haven't seen Giuliani. We haven't begun to make the case with him and his two amusing little friends. And, uh, you know, now we've also heard this bizarre twist. Maybe you want to talk about this a little bit. Bizarre sort of Bolton is willing to testify if a court makes him testify, but a court won't make him testify before the impeachment hearings probably take place and are over. And so... Bolton is either, you know, playing the Democrats or he's, you know, who knows what any of that means. But the, 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 the question becomes is, you know, are there star witnesses? Are there big breakthroughs that one can expect? Or is it really up to the Democrats to make the case with a bunch of people nobody's ever heard of and just make a really solid case? And would that be enough politically? Um, so uh, I think that, Next week's going to be different because it's going to be visual. <laughs> um, so there's going to be video of the people themselves saying it. And that I think there's so many Americans and certainly younger Americans who will tune into that. And so to have Ambassador Yovanovitch uh, speak, and I, I don't know, I think some of the others might be a bit drier. Um, so Ambassador Taylor um, is going to be more wonkish. Um, but, and, I, and, if, and if Vindman is called, then that will be something very powerful in his full um, military dress. So I think so I think that I think people will hear it anew. And and also there's just such an information deficit. I don't know 
and a study hasn't been done again, but it was late September uh, where it was the Monmouth study that said that uh, only 40% of Republicans agreed that Trump had mentioned Biden on the call and only 60% of independents and met, had agreed that Trump had mentioned Biden on the call, even though by that point Trump had said that he mentioned Biden on the call. So I just don't know what that information deficit is. So I do think people— Apparently one of the things division. we've learned is that he also— he didn't just want Zelensky to mention Biden, but apparently we learned today mm-hmm. that he also wanted him to mention Clinton, <laughs> right? That that he wanted him to say, we're, you know, looking into the 2016, you know, uh, uh, Clinton server scandal, and he wanted both of to use both of their names. Yeah, and I also thought one other piece on that, just a, not a footnote, but it's, the te- we also re- uh, was revealed this in the last 48 hours, the text messages between Volker, Sondland, and Taylor, especially Volker to the Ukrainians, the specific language that they wanted in the statement then right. was not even just like tell a, you know make a statement that you're opening an investigation. It was make a statement that you're opening an investigation, and the language of it suggests because there has been wrongdoing that we do not want it to recur again, which is even more devious. Um it, it has produced a good reaction in the media in Russia, you know, <laughs> the, because RT, I was, I was seeing some of the content that on Russian and the Russian television um, today, a couple of times referred to Trump as, you know, our Donald Ivanovich, who is, <laughs> <laughs> who is not just, you know, doing this thing, but, it, but he's going to prove that it was actually Ukraine and not Russia behind this hack. And and it's kind of a you know it's yeah. it's, it's 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 kind of stunning. Yeah. Um, anyway, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and then just uh, to address the Biden piece, I thought that the Washington Post reporting was either unclear or um, misleading uh, because the opening paragraph says um, Bolton will testify if a federal court clears the path or something like that clears the way for. It. And then the rest of the story is not about a federal court because that sounds like, oh, if the district court in the McGahn case by the end of November says that McGahn should or could testify that he doesn't have absolute immunity, then Bolton will break from the White House. But then the rest of the story is much more plausible, which is if Bolton is saying he's waiting for a federal court, he's going to wait until it goes all the way to the Supreme Court uh, because the rest of the story is also that Bolton apparently said to the House, if you subpoena me, I will go to court. That just sounds like somebody's going to litigate it all the way. It's just like if they, it's, if they have an adverse decision at the first court, they're going to go to the Court of Appeals. Then maybe they'll ask for an en banc. Then they'll go to the Supreme Court. And then what you said, David, that's that's 2020. Um, that, well, the, you know, this, this – I've said this is one of the things that really gets under my skin a little bit about the way this whole thing has been conducted. Um, and that is that the Democrats – because there were a bunch of Democrats who frankly didn't want to be doing this, let's be honest – have said, okay, we're going to do it, but we're going to do it fast. We're going to keep it super narrow. We're going to stick to Ukraine, and we're going to be done before January because we've got primaries, and we don't want to distract from the primaries. Well, if you if you say that, you know, you know, it's a little bit like saying, you know, we're going to pull out of Afghanistan by the end of December. You know, then the Taliban says, fine, <laughs> see you in January, and and you know, in the in this particular case, the Boltons and everybody else goes. Fine. You want to get it done by December? Get it done by December. We're just going to stall, and 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 most of what Trump has done thus far has been about stalling, right? I mean, that, and that works if the Democrats are impatient. It worked, by the way, 
with Mueller. Right. In terms of stalling and instead of agreeing. Right. To well, Mueller said, look, said I don't want to take I'm, too long. Yeah. yeah he yeah. said, I, you know, well, yeah. I could go to court and, right. you know, make him testify, but that would take too long. Yeah. And I was like, what do you mean it would take too long? Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> no, it's the, it seems like the one it's the one thing that President Trump, you know, appreciates and respects about the federal courts is that <laughs> they're, they're this in, extremely sort of useful um, slow walking mechanism for him, I think, in a lot of different spheres. And I do think that. The Democrats have basically said, right, they withdrew the subpoena to or the to the Bolton deputy, Copperman, right, is that yep. his name? Um, and I think that was, I was expecting that to come because it seemed clear to me that they had made the strategic judgment that they were not going to see this through. You know, could they have, now the McGann litigation is still ongoing, so um, I suppose they haven't decided to abandon all, you know, potential judicial avenues, but... But I'm not sure about that strategic choice, that it would not be helpful to have even, you know, because maybe there are some people, maybe Bolton is saying this, but doesn't actually want to be compelled to testify. But, you know, there are obviously some folks who are even still in government who are willingly participating in all of this. And then there are some who are sort of stonewalling with the White House. But maybe there's some sort of intermediate group that would with, you know, a district court or court of appeals mm-hmm. ruling say, OK, and um, I'm, I'm going to go in and testify. I'm just not sure it. It's the right call to just decide not to get some judicial ruling that says this theory that either there's absolute immunity or that all the stuff is privileged um, is, you know, a very, is very weak in this context because I think it is. Well, it's, uh, I mean, you know, it goes back to this ongoing discussion that we've had about impeachment for some time because there are people who are dragging their feet and who are not really enthusiastic about it. And, you know, it looks like to to the outsider that a decision was made within the House, which was – Go, have your hearings. We'll vote on impeachment at the end of your hearings. Uh, we may vote whether or not we want to impeach. We we haven't even gotten to that, but but we might vote to impeach. Um, but we probably won't win in the Senate, and we plan to use our hearings primarily to produce talking points for the 2020 election, saying there is corruption. We proved there was corruption. The Republicans don't care that there was corruption. And, you know, on, on to the election. As opposed to saying the president of the United States violated the law with Ukraine or with obstruction of justice or with Federal Election Commission or with, you know, any, you know, I mean, to, you know, we, violated his oath, oath of office, right? Like you know, he, repeatedly, yeah. And, and and you know, I mean, you know, it's amazing, right? Um, the to, you know, we're we're sitting here today, and we're twenty minutes into our conversation, and none of us have mentioned that the New York Attorney General managed to get a, a ruling against the president where he has to pay two million dollars because he misused his charities in a way to help support his election. And also to have some paintings done of him, it, which, you know, in any other administration mm. would be the biggest story of the year. And 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 we're just not even paying. It's not going to lead the news tonight. It's going to be, you know, it's if, right. it's if just it shows be, up. Oh, at yeah, all. $2 million yeah, from New know. York, you know, blah, 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 blah. And yeah. it's, it's, it's like there are, we, you and we, we have this conversation pretty regularly. There are five strong impeachment cases to be made. If you don't make four of them, the Republicans are going to say those things didn't matter. Mm. You couldn't make those mm. cases. Um, and it just looks to me like we're heading for a very, very case in a box, mm. you know, very, very neat little thing. Um, 
to be used as a talking point in an election campaign. So, um, so I want to disagree. I know. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to. We disagree we regularly that. disagree. On that, <laughs> so so I think um, I think it makes a lot of sense just for the pure case of impeachment to keep it focused, keep the narrative focused. Something is different with the public. They've reacted to this like they haven't reacted to all of the other impeachable offenses. And it's, I think it's because inviting a foreign government to interfere in our elections is something else. And it's about – and also under, understood as public corruption. And that's in the target set. That's, in fact, what's brought in purple state dis, uh, purple district Democrats. And the polls are showing public support for impeachment and removal above 50 percent. And that's with an information deficit. So I think after next week, maybe that number goes higher. And, and if they do it now when the public – is concentrated on it rather than the public gets tired of it because if you wait for the clock of the judiciary then you're waiting for a long period of time so concentrated do it handle it and then vote uh, on the impeachment articles to me that makes a ton of sense and i think you lose that momentum otherwise and when if he starts dipping in the polls or these numbers starts if the number starts to cross 60 percent then i think the senate is much more in play and then if he's starting to dip, the president's starting to dip, and that number goes above 60 percent, then there have been some polls that have said matching Pence up against the Democratic uh, candidates, and he, does, doesn't do it, he doesn't do worse than Trump. Mm. And if that number starts going up, then maybe they think this is not our guy. He is toxic. He's, he's Kentucky uh, gubernatorial election toxic. Um, Pence makes more sense to us even just – on their pure instrumental calculation of getting the voting, you know, share of the vote. So, I have to say, yeah. we're the, you know, the, 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 the words President Pence, <laughs> parts of my, my innards are shriveling up just even thinking about this. But do, do you agree with Ryan's take? And, you know, I, I think that the kind of cynical version of the story that you just told is a plausible one. Um, but I also think that it is possible that the Democrats are simultaneously pursuing impeachment in good faith and also have one eye on the reelection campaign, right? This is an unusual sort of scenario from a timing perspective in that both Nixon and Clinton were not facing re-election when they were impeached um, or when Should Nixon was. Andrew Johnson election year. Was. Yeah, of course. It was so February it, of an election year. It was February of an election year. And you know what? Um, you know, it's an interesting story to think about maybe winning by losing because although Johnson manages to hang on and not be convicted and removed in the Senate, he doesn't even get his party's nomination to run for president that November. So he loses in the final analysis. Now, there's a longer story about the way his politics ultimately win in the kind of decades after that. But there is certainly precedent for an election year impeachment, right? So I think that argument is completely specious. Um, but I do think that it's it it means that there will be a couple of objectives sort of running in parallel. And, and maybe that's okay if they are making a case that they're not able to make to reach this constitutional, you know, supermajority threshold, that the president is unfit to be president, it's okay if they make the case, you know, in a very similar way to a different audience soon thereafter. Um, but I do agree with the first thing you said very much, which is that the really, really narrow version of, you know, a, a truly Ukraine-focused set of impeachment articles would be uh, a mistake. I think that this conduct occurs in the context of a, a broader course of conduct that is all kind of related, and that would be more compelling if told together. Well, I have to say, I, I, I would take it a step further even, which is the Ukraine case is the Russia case. Right. And mm-hmm. the, the position taken in Ukraine, the arguments made in Ukraine, involve some of the same players. Right. 
with the same motivation, advancing a Kremlin agenda. Uh, in fact, it's even more core to the Kremlin agenda. Um, and not making those connections is, is, yeah. is a mistake. I mean, there's, there's arguably a through line, right? The president, when he's running for office, right, says publicly, you know, Russia, if you're listening, please find those emails. And as we know from the Mueller report, within several hours, Russian intelligence begins targeting email addresses associated with the Clinton campaign. And that sort of, you know, is one of the things that sets in motion this, you know, Mueller investigation that later starts. And then the investigation runs its course. And then what is it? Two days after the testimony on the Hill, this July phone call happens. So, you know, it is all it does feel all related in some fashion. And and there's no reason. I mean, it's a more complicated story. And maybe that's part of the calculation they're making. It's hard to tell that story. Harder to tell that story. No, it is hard to tell the story. Although I have to say, you know, one of the other things that happened this week that again gets lost in the sauce is that in the United Kingdom, a report was supposed to come out on Russian involvement in the Brexit vote. And the prime minister... Um, Boris Johnson is trying to suppress that um, because, obviously, you know it's the it's not similar. It's the same. It is the same initiative by Russian intelligence to use democracies' um, processes against them and to weaken the Western alliance, country by country. And it's it's all a bigger picture. And I think, frankly, if somebody made that picture clear that this was a massive coordinated attack on the governments of the West um, that actually succeeded, that would be a compelling case. But we're, we're, we're not going to get there. Let me ask you a question, Ryan, about another complicating factor in all of this. We mentioned one thing, which is the New York Attorney General uh, decision. We also have, starting uh, just the other day, the um, Roger Stone trial, and in the Roger Stone trial, we're starting to see some things that may actually be new, even though we've known about Roger Stone, in part because some elements of the Mueller report that pertain to the Roger Stone case were redacted because the Roger Stone case was, was pending. But it does seem like Trump was more involved in direct communications with Roger Stone uh, regarding the WikiLeaks release of, of data. Um, that there may be specific crimes of Trump's that come into clearer focus in all of this. Lying to Mueller could be one of them. Uh, the nature of the coordination with WikiLeaks, remember Mueller's mandate was to look at whether the Trump campaign partnered with the Russians, and Mueller said, well, I couldn't prove they partnered with the Russian government, which I thought was a little mm. legalistic, mm. right, because mm -hmm. there were Russians who— probably worked for the government. Well, WikiLeaks is a step further removed from all of that. And yet there may have been other crimes involved with that. How do you conduct an impeachment inquiry in the context of of all this, you know, parallel information and new facts entering into this, dominating the story? There, you know, Roger Stone could go bananas in court next week and no one will be, you know, but it's true, right? Mm -hmm. It's likely, you know, that he does that, and 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 it'll it'll distract from the impeachment hearing, right? And and I think that there are many things that the Republicans will do to try to distract from the impeachment hearings, and Trump will do with his Twitter account to distract from the impeachment hearings, like whatever is the equivalent. Can't even foresee them, but whatever is the equivalent of, you know. From rushing the skiff or something like that, mm. um, 
And there and there are people who are willing to just embarrass themselves in in, in many ways. Exactly. Do whatever, right? <laughs> There's a whole task force of people willing to embarrass <laughs> yes, themselves. Right. Captains, deputies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so who knows what they will try to do because the media follows that. And, and to me, it's also, you know, if I go in a cable news show at night and there's something important, there was a hearing in the morning, but as I'm about to go to the show, there's a Trump tweet. They want to talk about the Trump mm. tweet, right? So he, he understand and he understands a lot. He understands how politicians work. He understands how the media works. So I think that we have to prepare for that. I, I do think there's one element in a certain sense with the <clears throat> Roger Stone trial that is also consistent with the narrative and the storytelling of the impeachment hearing, which is that we're, you know, I guess what's being revealed is the degree to which Trump was in coordination and communication with Roger Stone over getting WikiLeaks to intervene in the election. And that makes the facts and allegations and involved in Ukraine more real and plausible because it is part of this whole course of conduct and vice versa. So it kind of feeds off each other in that sense. I think there's that, but that's, I guess, not exactly your question because your question is about like Roger Stone, you know, falling down and with food poisoning or whatever the case might be, you know, what does he do next week? He could do anything. Um, but it's just, it's, it's a, it's a very, very, strange moment that we find that we find ourselves in where we've got all of these things going on simultaneously um multiple mm. threads of wrongdoing by the president um and frankly in a in a weird way he benefits from having multiple threads of wrongdoing because it's hard to focus on any one of them right yeah and i mean i think that as ryan says he's you know he is extremely skilled in the kind of media manipulation arts and i think that um, often sort of deliberately kind of injects new storylines um, in order to, yeah, kind of like flood the airwaves with that in a way that makes it harder to kind of keep focus in a coherent narrative. And so I think that you're right that the task, I think that for folks who like are in the business of kind of commenting on all of this and trying to make it intelligible to the public, trying not to allow those kinds of distractions to prevent like, you know, just sort of straight telling of the story that unfolds in the Intelligence Committee next week will be really important. Well, and, and, and in fact, you know, one of the areas the Republicans have been extremely good so far, and I seldom use th those two terms together, Republicans <laughs> and good in the same sentence, but uh, is that they have been very successful at defining the terms of the legal debate, right? I agree. So Mueller became about collusion. Mm -hmm. Collusion really wasn't even an issue, but even Mueller had to begin his report talking about collusion, right? And and yeah. and and in this particular case, we we were on the quid pro quo train for a while, even though quid pro quo has nothing to do with this. Um, and they they you know they, and 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 I think they've shifted from that, and they've gone from that to um, arguing. What he did may have been wrong, but it's not impeachable. And that what he was doing was within his prerogatives as president in terms of making foreign policy. Presidents do this kind of thing all the time. And if you don't like it, debate it. But you can't impeach him for it. Right. That's almost an impossible argument to argue against. If, 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 you know, so what's the antidote? Yeah. I mean, I think it's true that they have 
you know, they were they were so kind of monomaniacally focused on this intoning no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. And now they're, you know, it has been quite clearly confirmed by members of the president's, you know, own team, Sondland, I think, right, most prominently that, yes, there was a quid pro quo and everyone understood it. So you're right. I think they have shifted their kind of rhetoric. Um you know, I think to the to the extent that they say, right, this is foreign relations, this is diplomacy, there's a give and take, there are threats and promises, that's just part of the game. I just think that the response has to be diplomacy is about advancing the United States national interests, not the personal political fortunes of the president. That is not diplomacy. And so, so it does feel to me like there is an answer to that. And then the you know, how serious is it is just it's as serious as people think it is. There's a circularity to that, you know, and maybe that's kind of the point, which is it's a sort of unanswerable question. Uh, it depends on what standards we want to apply. But if I think, you know, you want to go back to the purposes for which the framers wrote impeachment into the Constitution, it was preventing against the kind of corruption and self-dealing that we have a lot of evidence was sort of at the heart of, of this whole sort of sequence of events. Um, but but yeah, and they will say it was it was bad, but not bad enough. And and I, it's like all you know, the public is going to help figure help the members of the committee and then members of the House and the Senate figure out how bad bad enough is. Well, but, but this gets to a point that we actually were talking to a little bit, but right before we we went on, we touched upon it a little earlier, and that is, what is it the Democrats have got to prove? Yeah. What what is the point that they've got to to make? And I was just thinking about it in terms of what Kate was saying, because the Constitution specifically cites bribery right. as yeah. an impeachable offense. Mm-hmm. Bribery took place here. Funds were offered to a foreign official in order to get him to do something. And at the same time, he was told those funds would be withheld if he didn't do it. That's bribery. <clears throat> um if the Democrats say the Constitution says bribery is impeachable, we are going to improve that bribery took place. Here was the moment that it took place. Here are seven people that testify to it taking place. Here are 13 experts that tell us what the definition of bribery is. Case closed. You know, I mean, to me, that seems sensible. Is there another way to do that? Is that? No, actually, that's what I was about to say. Um that's why I have my phone in front of me. Um, Randall Eliason tweeted today, this isn't complicated. One, Trump corruptly demanded something of personal value in exchange for official action. Two, that's the legal definition of bribery. Three, the Constitution specifies bribery as grounds for impeachment. To say there's no impeachable offense is just nonsense. It's like, it's that simple. Even um, I could come to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and, the, I, and, and I went to law school for a semester. <laughs> <laughs> so, so... <laughs> You got out just in time. I got out just in time. <laughs> so, but that—that that is the and and the the beauty of that argument is like we don't need to go around about like high crime systems. What is that and what rises to the level? It's bribery. It's in the Constitution. This is the, this is the well, and I think it is. Keep it simple, stupid has got to be it. Right. And recognizing that you're not making just a legal case, but you have to make the legal case, right? You you have to do the law. You have to sit, prove a law was broken, because even if you don't have to break, a, have commit a crime, to commit an impeachable offense, you're not going to get where you want to go politically unless you can prove it, and so that's the bar. It's not in the Constitution, but it's in the public mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I guess, I'm hesitating at the idea of sort of of just linking it. It's like there's the sort of legalism of linking it so much to the elements of the mm. criminal offense of bribery, at least 
exclusively. I think you're right that it sounds quite simple, but okay, so you're saying in addition to... No, no, I'm saying in addition. I'm just saying that's a hurdle. You got to check that box. Yeah, I think that's... I mean, it is the case that the previous presidential impeachments um, have focused on the high crimes and misdemeanors. There have been a couple of judicial impeachments that have involved bribery, um, but... But, you know, we just haven't had, at least publicly, facts that looked remotely like this involving a president. So I guess that's not that surprising. Well, in this case, yeah. right? I mean, the reality is, if you look at Andrew Johnson's case of ignoring a law passed by Congress, Trump did that. Abusing the Congress, Trump did that. If you look at Richard Nixon's case of abusing power, Trump did that. Mm-hmm. If you look at Richard Nixon's case of obstructing justice, Trump did that. If you look at Bill Clinton's case of lying under oath on an issue, Trump did that. All the things that occurred in all of the impeachments that took place are cases you could make against Trump compellingly. And, you know, in, and you left out, but failing to comply with congressional investigators, which was one of the articles right. against Nixon, right? So I think it's right that to the extent that this precedent has some value, I mean, I don't think that this Congress is constrained by what the last, what the three, you know, uh, Congresses that have done something close to, you know, either impeached the House in the House or just in the committee. Um, I don't think that constrains this Congress, but I do think that, you know, it can shore up the public case to the extent that the president's team has gotten some traction in suggesting that breaks from precedent render the process Mm. illegitimate. It might be helpful to be able to sort of shore up what you were doing by saying this is totally consistent and even the articles look consistent. And in particular, though Nixon obviously resigned and foreclosed further proceedings, everyone agrees that he would have been, or most people agree. I don't know if that's true in 2019, but certainly in 1974, he would have been convicted and removed in the Senate. And um, and so if you try to, you know, sort of model to some degree these articles on those, and by the way, those to your earlier point about sort of narrowness or breadth, Watergate is of course at the heart of the Nixon case, but there's also stuff about the misuse of the IRS and the FBI to target enemies and and the plumbers, right, you know, sort of private security yes. operation inside the White House. So it actually did go beyond um, just Watergate, even with Nixon. So um, so I do think that the history suggests, you know, going a bit broader is sort of a better advised path. This, by the way, I strongly recommend that people go, Google it, look at the Johnson Articles of Impeachment, look at the Nixon Articles of Impeachment, look at the Clinton Articles of Impeachment. I just finished a book in which I look, it's, it's about history of betrayal from Benedict Arnold to Donald Trump, right? And so I look at a bunch of different kinds of betrayal, you know, working with foreign governments and espionage and so forth. But I also have a chapter where I'm looking at these articles of impeachment. And if you, you know, read these articles of impeachment and just cut and paste the name, you know, it's really stunning. And everything that you just mentioned with regard to the IRS or the the plumbers and so forth, those are individual articles of impeachment, uh, and it makes a strong case. Yeah, um, so I've actually done this, um, so I'm going to read from it. <laughs> so abuse of power, just the exact way that you both have described in the way Kate had said, like just pitch it at this higher level. So here's the Nixon article, and then you can transpose it onto Trump. So Nixon article, quote, Article 2, um, quote, using the powers of the office of the president of the United States, Richard M. Nixon, in violation of his constitutional oath faithfully to execute the office of the president of the United States, has repeatedly engaged in conduct, impairing the due and proper administration of justice and the conduct of lawful inquiries, or contributing to law governing agencies, the executive branch, and the, and the purpose of these agencies. The conduct has included one or more of the following. He has, acting personally and through his subordinates and agents, misused the Federal Bureau of Investigation and other executive personnel by directing or authorizing such agencies or personnel to conduct investigations for purposes unrelated to national security, end quote. And they just transpose it onto Trump. So here's the Trump one. Quote, using the powers of the office of the President of the United States, Donald J. Trump, in violation of his constitutional oath, faithfully to execute the office of the President of the United States, 
has willfully abused the power of the office by soliciting a foreign government to act for his personal gains and for a purpose unrelated to national security or the enforcement of laws. It's just Right, and the Nixon articles of impeachment, if I recall correctly, then go on to the IRS, then go on to the CIA, by the way, and then you get on to the third article of impeachment, which goes into failing to provide documents when required and so on and so forth. And again, you can just do this throughout. So if you really cared about precedent, you really cared about past yeah. impeachments, you would see this. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's in, in many ways to me even more striking if you go to Andrew Johnson because he was an asshole. <laughs> and he was an asshole to Congress. And he was essentially impeached in part for being an asshole to Congress. Yeah, the tenth ar- the tenth article is amazing, <laughs> right? Intemperate harangues, unbecoming the chief magistrate of the United States. Like it's all about his unhinged rhetoric, and right. yeah, it does sort of ring and he, familiar. But he he, lo- he he won by one vote, and he probably bought that vote, and that probably <laughs> no probably, and it you know it's the opposite. You know the Lincoln movie with Daniel Day Lewis, and he like you know gets that one last vote, and all of a sudden we have you know, um, you know, we free the slaves. But, you know, Andrew Johnson did the same kind of horse trading and didn't get convicted and removed from office, but he left at the end because some kind of deal was cut because he was done. I mean, the, he, he was finished off for behaving exactly like Donald Trump behaves. So we only have a couple more minutes here, and I just want to go to one more bit of news from the week, and I want you to do the impossible. I know you both teach <laughs> law school, attended law school, and and I would like you to sort of put place yourself in the brain of Bill Barr, um, you know. And and one of the things there was a story uh, today, the day we're taping this is a Thursday, although you may be listening to it on another day, uh, in the New York Times and in the Washington Post and ABC and a bunch of other places that said that the president asked Bill Barr to hold a press conference and say nothing was wrong with the Ukraine, and. Bill Barr refused to do that, which has led to a lot of people going, wait a minute, that's not the Bill Barr I know. You know, he, do, he, does, that kind, he, he does that kind of thing. Um, and I know, Ryan, you have, you have a perspective on that, again, because we, we've talked about it a little bit, and I'd like you to sort of take this and place it into some perspective. You know, did Bill Barr have a moment of conscience? Did he skin this cat a different way? And is there, you know, and I'm pose this to you, Kate, after Ryan responds, you know, is there a red line in Bill Barr's head beyond which he will not go? Because, you know, some, some of the time I don't think there is one, but but you guys, what what do you think? So um, my thought would be, um, if I'm in Bill Barr's head, <laughs> one, I'm not going to do that. It won't really work. <laughs> it's not going to be effective. I've, I've, I understand I've lost public credibility, and for me to stand up there and say in a press conference that I've called for this moment that the president broke no laws on that phone call, that's not going to serve uh, either the president or me in this political game well. And that, instead, what we're going to do is the Justice Department will issue a statement which says that there's no investigations because there was no federal campaign law violation. And that's what he did. So I, I, so I, I think, in the end, I'm not sure that he has any bone of independence or is trying to maintain something for the Justice Department or his legacy. Um, remember, I guess there was the CBS interview where they said something to him about like his integrity, and he said, we all die at some point. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think he's changed. I don't see anything to say that. No, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't know that he did either, but you know, we do live <laughs> in a moment where a Mueller prosecutor is prosecuting Roger Stone. It could be bad for Trump. And presumably, Barr 
could have put some pressure on that. It seems like there's an investigation going on into Rudy Giuliani and these two dudes. Um, Barr could put pressure on that because it also seems like in some of the other cases against Trump, he did put pressure and they, they disappeared, mm-hmm. right? So I just wonder if either, A, these are outliers and these people refuse to go along with it or possibly B, um, you know, Barr is calculated that he's got to let one or two things go along to have the appearance of 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 actually being the attorney general and not you know Roy Cohn the second right yeah i don't i didn't know what to make of it i mean i i thought immediately of that there's a couple of lines in the summary of the of the trump zelensky phone call um about, you know, talk to Giuliani, talk to Barr. Remember, he's, you know, he the president invokes the AG a couple of times on that phone call. And I think that the Justice Department put out a statement after the, that summary was released, sort of disavowing any such conversations having occurred, maybe saying something like the AG wasn't aware of this. So, yeah. so I wondered whether he felt a little thrown under the bus there, and this was a little bit of face-saving that was responsive to that. That seemed like a possibility. Um you know, but you're you're right about the fact that this stuff is still ongoing in Bill Barr's Justice Department, um, and I think the real test will be, you know, people. There's if there's an investigation into Rudy Giuliani, there is some possibility that we'll see an indictment. And the Southern District of New York has long understood itself to be kind of quasi independent, though not formally so, from the main Justice Department. Um, and I mean, I I think that if Barr tried to interfere in any such investigation, you would probably see, you know. I don't know, mass resignations in that office. Like, I think they take their independence extremely seriously, and he probably knows that. And so so I think he – I'm not sure he has really that many choices with respect to that particular investigation. Um, but but it also, you know, a much more cynical explanation is he's just – he needs to preserve his political capital. He does know that some has been eroded, and it may be needed down the road. And so and so it's sort of saving whatever big gesture he's going to make for some, some later, better, in his estimation, use. Well, what – you know, it'll be interesting to see because we've already had one this week pop up, which is that in the Stone trial, it seems clear that Trump lied under oath to Mueller. Now, normally speaking, for something like that to emerge in a trial, the Justice Department would pick up on it. And it'll be interesting to see whether, in fact, they do. Yeah. Um, two thoughts. Um, one to uh, piggyback on what Kate was saying. And then what you just said, David. So one is there's also the news report this week that Barr is maybe trying to race to get the Inspector General report mm. out by the end of this month, by Thanksgiving, on the 2016 election and the FISA warrants, things like that, plus his own 2016 investigation maybe as well. But So if he's racing to do that in this month, I can understand. Even as you said that. Yeah. I get digestive distress, <laughs> you know, because I, you know, you kind of know what that's going to say, right? Right. And it's going to be infuriating because it'll be smoke and mirrors and rumors and conspiracy theories and can't rule this out and maybe this happened and just enough to muddy the waters, right? Yeah. So he might be preserving his political capital, his social capital, everything for that, rather than. Wasted and a distraction that by having make by making a public statement at the press conference, and then just the second piece, um, you mentioned it a couple of times, David, about the um, Roger Stone trial implicating Trump. So I just want to actually read what Trump said in his um, uh, statement, written statement, um, 
to Mueller, quote, I do not recall discussing what WikiLeaks with him, Stone, nor do I recall being aware of Mr. Stone having discussed WikiLeaks with individuals associated with my campaign. Um, so denying that, doesn't recall, but not recalling, if you actually do recall, is still perjury. Um, I think that's partly what's being implicated by the communications that the prosecutors have already mentioned just in the opening days of the trial. Well, I wish the two of you were handling the questioning next week <laughs> for the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence as they do this. I hope they rely on professional lawyers as they go forward. Um, Kate, thank you for joining us here in, in our strange little studio. Thanks for having me. And um, uh, Ryan, I trust you'll be back here in our strange little studio again next Sounds week. Great. And maybe you'll come back sometime in the future. I'd be happy to. Because this is going to be going on for a while. Uh, thank you, everybody, for joining us. If you're interested in more uh, of what we are doing here at the DSR Network, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Listen to other episodes of Deep State Radio, Unredacted, the podcast, other things that are up on our site. And if you happen to encounter the little button on the site that says membership and you click on it and then you sign up and you become a member and you help support all of this, that's a good thing. It could be your good deed for the day. You should do a good deed every day. <laughs> Or, and that deed you could do every day as far as I'm concerned. So thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to you joining us again uh, next week on the DSR Network.